Before we get into our study this morning, I want to take some time uh, to pray for the Boulder community and also everyone that's been affected by uh, this shooting this week. It's been a tough week for uh, Colorado and our hearts uh, really mourn for uh, the loss of life. So let's pray together and, and lift up Boulder. Father, our hearts do break uh, for those that have lost loved ones this week. And Lord, lost a mom, lost a dad, a, a sister, Lord, a daughter, a son. And as they mourn and grieve, Lord, we, we mourn with them and ask that you would comfort them. Jesus, would you walk with them through this time, lead them through the valley of the, the shadow of death. Lord, we pray for everyone that was in the grocery store at that time, in the parking lot, and the trauma that they're going through, and how Satan would want to use that as destruction in their life. Lord, would you meet them and give them peace? We pray over Boulder, Lord, that you would equip the churches and strengthen the churches, Lord, to reach out and be an instrument of your love and your comfort. So, Father, as we spend time in your word this morning, would you speak to us? And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. It's been amazing to watch God work through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes that step of faith to go before the king, King Artaxerxes, to ask to be able to rebuild the wall around the temple. God funds the project. The people are motivated to work. But then last week we saw opposition come against them from Sanballat and uh, Tobiah. Continuing to draw near to the Lord, continuing to be, be faithful. Now this week we're going to see the division comes from within. I think that this is the moment where the work of God is at its greatest point of jeopardy. Because it's difficult to handle opposition from outside, but we expect that. We expect the enemy to come against us. But when there's division amongst God's people, when there's division in our, our families, it hurts so much more, and it's unexpected. Nehemiah steps in, and God really uses him to be able to confront the sin and bring about a restoration. So even though the work is at its weakest point, its greatest vulnerability, also this is the greatest potential for transformation. Because up until this point, there's been the building of the wall, but not necessarily the changing of lives. And this whole time the wall has been being built, there's sin that has been taking place, and it's in this chapter that we see lives being transformed. And that's what God's intending for us as well. He, he wants to mobilize us for his work, but he also wants to transform and, and change our lives. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 5. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. What is happening is there's a famine and there's real need. And people are at a place where they can't get food. And instead of their fellow Israelites helping them, they decide, well, I'll go ahead and lend money to my neighbor at an exorbitant interest rate. And they're even enslaving their fellow Israelites, saying, well, I'll give you the money that you need. I'll give you the food that you need, but I'm going to take your son or daughter as a slave. This gets to a point where it's at a boiling point, And there's a great outcry that comes from the people and comes from the wives. The wives are like, wait a second. This is not okay. The way that we're being treated and the way that our children are being treated. Remember that there has been those that have come back from exile for some time now. The first group came with 
Ezra to rebuild the temple. And in this time, there's, there's difficulty and they've started to mistreat one another. Now, why didn't this sin come out earlier? Why didn't it come out before they started building the wall? I don't know. But have you observed that sin rarely comes out at a convenient time? You really can't control when sin's going to explode, when, when the toothpaste is going to explode, if you would. And in our foolishness, a lot of times we think we can manage sin. I got this under control. I can prevent the consequences, but, but that's not the case. And it's going to boil over. And it normally boils over at a very difficult and in, inconvenient time. In verse 2, for there were those who said, we are sons and daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. So this is their very survival. They've got families and some large families. All right, we don't have anything to be able to eat. And it takes a lot of groceries to feed a family, doesn't it? And feed a, a large, large family. And you get to that place of, of desperation if you're not able to feed your kids. So this is what they do. There are also those among us who said, we have mortgaged our lands, our vineyards, and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. This famine's so severe that they've sold off their homes, sold off their farms, their, their vineyards, mortgaged them just to be able to get food. What makes it worse is they're also experiencing a high tax burden in verse 4. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Historians tell us that the Persian Empire would collect two million darks a year just on land tax. So they were notorious for those that they had taken captive to say, we're going to tax you as a land owner. Alexander the Great, when he conquered Sushan, the capital of the Persian Empire, he found 270 tons of gold and 1,200 tons of silver in their treasury. So people are just getting whipped with taxes, just taken advantage of with taxes by the Persian Empire. Now, I'm no genius, but I think we're in for more taxes. Like, future generations are going to have a huge tax burden in the United States. Someone's going to have to answer for, for the debt load, right? So, so you can kind of imagine what this is like and all that they're going through. There's a famine, plus there's a huge tax burden. In verse 5, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It's not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. God warned against this in Leviticus chapter 25, that the children of Israel would not charge each other interest. If there was an Israelite who was in need, you would lend them the money, but not charge them interest. And also, God said, you can't enslave your own people, your, your fellow Israelites. So they're finding themselves in a place where they're in disobedience to God's word. Their hearts have really gotten hard towards each other. You would think at this moment, as they're rebuilding the wall, that they would care for each other's needs. That they would say, okay, you know, here's my fellow Israelite who doesn't have food. I'm going to rally around them. I have more than I need. I've been blessed. There were Israelites that had resources at this time. They had enough money to lend and charge interest. They were able to buy Israelites as, as slaves. I mean, can, can you imagine 
a fellow Israelite saying, well, you need food, you need money, I'll go ahead and, and buy your daughter. I'll, I'll buy your, your son as a slave. And those families didn't have the money, didn't have the resources to buy back their, their very own uh, children. In a lot of ways, I, I think that we feel like we're above this, that we would treat each other better as brothers and sisters in Christ in, in point of need, but this year has revealed how powerful fear and survival are. And if we're not careful, in times of crisis, if we have resources, we can really try to hold on to them. Case in point, toilet paper, right? Freaking out, like, we don't have toilet paper. I got to buy a bunch of toilet paper. And before you know it, got this huge stockpile in the garage of toilet paper. And our brother and sister in Christ might need toilet paper. You're, like, You're on your own. You should have seen this coming. Like, I read an article yesterday that because of the boat that's blocking the Suez uh, Canal, that we might have another toilet paper crisis. Look out, right? And it reveals and it tests uh, our hearts to say, am I just going to hoard resources? Am I going to be, be greedy with resources? And, or am I going to be in that place of saying, God's provided for me, he's taken care of me, and here's a brother and sister in Christ that I can take care of, that I can serve, that I can give to. If we were really in this situation where there's a famine, there's, there's no food, and we had resources, it would test our faith and our generosity if we would give. Because you'd have to trust the Lord that he was going to provide for your needs. I can hold on to this money, I can hold on to this food, or I can give to my fellow Israelite who is in need. But in these times of crisis, if the body of Christ, the church with a big C, all of us that are believers, if we care for each other in Jesus' name, our light shines brighter. Because the world goes, why are they caring for each other? Like, why are they sharing toilet paper, right? Kind of a cool story. When all that hit, I didn't really see it coming. I didn't really think that there'd be a toilet paper shortage. So it kind of got to the point where, as a family, we're like, we gotta figure this out. We gotta get out there and find some toilet paper. So I went to like four or five stores, and Ace would sell you like one roll. Like a family of six, well, one roll isn't gonna go too far. So we were at the dollar store, and we bump into one of our neighbors who also goes to RMC, and she's like, what are you guys doing? I'm like, yeah, we're just hunting around for toilet paper, kind of making it fun and, and stuff, and just had a little chit-chat. And then later that afternoon, she dropped off some toilet paper at her house. Like, like, literally, she shared her toilet paper, right? She's an example of this, of saying, man, I'm going to give at this, this point uh, of need. And when we love that way, it really shows care to the body, but it's also a bright light uh, to unbelievers. So verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Nehemiah, rightfully so, gets angry. And he gets very angry. And Jesus displayed righteous anger. We know Jesus never sinned, yet he was angry. He wasn't angry when his toes got stepped on or when he was taken advantage of, but when God's people were being taken advantage of at the temple, he got angry and he overturned the, the tables. We need to be careful to not fall to one side of the extreme of this. Sometimes in our anger, we sin. We get angry and it's easy for us to then sin. But then also sometimes we're complacent and the lack of anger reveals our complacency. 
There are some things that should make us angry in a righteous manner. There's things that should stir us and say, wait a second, this is not okay and it's not going to be tolerated. Nehemiah wouldn't be honoring God, nor would he be a good leader if he's just like, well, there's nothing I can do about this. Or you guys figure this out for yourself, or I don't want to deal with it. So he shows the right response here by having righteous anger. And then he also shows great wisdom in verse 7, after serious thought. You may want to underline that. He doesn't just take action in his anger, but he gives it some serious thought. He thinks it through. No doubt taking time to pray and pause and wait upon the Lord. God, how do I deal with this? Because if we're in a position where we have to confront sin, the scripture gives us a lot of indication on how to do that. And if we do it in an ungodly way, we're going to add more problems to the situation. So he thinks it through. He waits upon the Lord. Then I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. He calls out the sin and shows great courage in doing so. He actually gets the rulers and the nobles that were doing this together in one room. He says, I'm going to just deal with this once and for all at this moment in time. We're not to be going around looking for sin or being on the hunt for sin, or being a a sin sniffer. It's not like we get together with believers and we're like, I know you're hiding something, and I'm going to get into your life and challenge you you on sin. That's not the idea at all. It's when there's blatant rebellion against God, and God reveals it, it, it's there, then we're left with a choice of saying, I'm your brother in Christ, I'm your sister in Christ, will I confront this, this sin? And God does call us to confront one another. But how we do it is really important. Jesus said that we're to first examine if there's a log in our own eye before we do deal with a speck in someone else's eye. It's really easy to see sin in someone else's life, but hard to see it in my own. So I gotta stop and look, well, where's the sin in my life that I've gotta deal with? Imagine if you did have a log coming out of your eye and you're trying to deal with a speck in someone else's eye, you're going to hit them up beside the head with the log, right? So Lord, what am I missing in my own heart and in my own life? And in Jesus' illustration of a speck in someone else's eye, the eye is sensitive. You know, if something's in your eye, it's painful. If you have to have someone help you to clean out your eye, you appreciate it if they're gentle, who would want an eye doctor who's really gruff, like, oh, you're being a baby, get over here. I'm gonna clean out your eye, right? So when we're going to deal with, with someone else's sin, we wanna do it with gentleness and humility. In Galatians 1, and Galatians 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man's overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself, let you also be tempted. The whole purpose of confrontation is for restoration. We want to see them restored to the Lord, restored in relationships, restored in the body of Christ. So if we don't have that heart of restoration, we need to slow down. Also, it tells us those who are spiritual, well, we want to put on the brakes and go, am I in the spirit or am I in the flesh? Am I sinful in this confrontation? with a spirit of gentleness. I'm going to be gentle about this, considering myself. 
knowing that I've got sin in my life that needs to be uh, confronted. I'm not above being uh, confronted. So how we confront and challenge each other on sin is, is really important. In verse eight, and I said to them, according to our ability, we've redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? How sad. They had been slaves for 70 years, been in captivity for 70 years. Now they have freedom and they're enslaving each other. They're putting each other into uh, captivity. And Nehemiah calls that out. And we think about this in our own relationships is we've been set free from captivity, from sin, through the blood of the lamb. Our brothers and sisters in Christ have been set free from sin. So how then should we interact with each other? I'm forgiven, you're forgiven. We're persons of freedom and we wanna serve each other with the liberty that God has given to us, not using our, our liberty for destruction, but for edification. Then they were silent and found nothing to say. This is a God moment. Because we tend to be defensive when it comes to sin and when we're confronted on sin. First sin committed in the Bible, Adam and Eve, God's the one doing the confronting in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And what does Adam do? He does the double blame game. God, it's the woman that you gave me. He blames Eve and he blames God. God, if you wouldn't have given me Eve, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and we still do that. We still point the blame. A lot of times as husbands on our, on our wives. What does Eve do? Well, it was the serpent. It was Satan. But neither Adam or Eve were like, hey, I did it. I disobeyed. God, I'm silent before you. Let's not defend our sin, but to be silent and to confess our sin, to agree with God, yeah, this is wrong. And so this is a God moment that they're not defending themselves. In verse nine, then I said, what you're doing is not good. Nehemiah just says it straight. What you're, what you're doing is not good. And as we do confront one another, we wanna do it in truth and in love. Gotta do it in love and you've gotta do it in truth. You gotta say it and say it straight, but saying lovingly. There's nothing worse than confronting someone where they have no idea what we're saying. Hey, I need to talk. There's something really on my heart. I just got this feeling that things aren't going very well in your life and would you please pray about that feeling? And they're looking at us like, you're an idiot. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I know you're trying to say something, but what exactly are you trying to say? You gotta say it straight. What you're doing is not good. Here, God's word, it says that this is the way he wants us to, to live and, and you're in rebellion to, to God's word. You gotta say it straight. You gotta say the truth, but say it lovingly and say it with, with kindness. Continuing verse nine. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah gets to the heart of the issue. When we're dealing with sin, we've got to look at the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue for the children of Israel is the fear of God. And Nehemiah says, if you're, you're fearing God, you wouldn't be doing this. So what is the, the fear of God? To be in a place of the fear of God is to be in awe and respect of, of who God is. Solomon was probably the wisest man who ever lived, wrote the book of Proverbs. 
So the wisest man who ever lived said that wisdom begins with the fear of God. If we're going to have wisdom, we have to fear God, have God in that proper place in, in our lives. Worship really puts God in his proper place in our lives. We reflect on his power, his majesty, his holiness, his character. But what I think moves us to the fear of God more than anything else is his love. That he loves us, that he loves us unconditionally, that he gave his, his son for us. Or puts us in the place of valuing God, of saying, God, I don't want to do anything to hurt your heart. Especially when it comes to the way we treat people, it reflects where we're at with the fear of God. We want to divorce the two and go, God, I love you, but I just really don't like people. You know? Sometimes as pastors, pastors joke around like, man, it'd be really easy to be a pastor if it wasn't for people. Have you ever heard that, right? Sometimes as believers, we'll kind of say this sentiment, I, I love Jesus, but I really don't like the church. You know, I don't like brothers and sisters in Christ. They're hypocritical and, and they hurt me. But if we love God, we're gonna love people. We're gonna love, love his church. In 1 John, that's really emphasized the love of God. And if I claim to love God, that's gonna then overflow into how I treat people. What is missing in these Israelites' lives that are doing this to fellow Israelites is the fear of God. If the fear of God's in its right place in my life, that's gonna affect how I treat Amber. It's gonna affect how I treat my kids. It's gonna affect how I treat you. It's gonna affect how I interact with people. If I'm off and sinning against Amber and the kids and sinning against fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm off with the Lord. I've gotta get that fear of the Lord right. So a good thing for us to pray through and to pray about is, Lord, would, would you allow me to have the fear of God? I want to walk in, in the fear of God. I want you to be in the proper place and for me to be in the proper place in, in my life. One of the things with the fear of God is it could be in the right place in our lives 10 years ago, five months ago, but it may be off today. I may not be in a place where I'm fearing the Lord like I should. You look at David's life and his trajectory, and there was times where worship and the fear of God was in its proper place. But then there's times where it wasn't, and he found himself in adultery, and the same is true for us. So, so we daily want to be in that place of, of Lord, I'm going to be in awe of you. I want you to have your proper place in my life. In verse 10 I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Stop charging interest. Here's the call out in verse 11. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you have charged them. Outcry of sin confrontation of sin, and now repentance, resulting in restoration. It's important for us when God deals with sin in our lives to confess it before the Lord, but then to also turn from it, receiving his forgiveness and then turning away from the sin. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. The Bible refers to it as the fruit of repentance, that, that repentance is going to result in fruit, not perfection, but change. Nehemiah calls them out to 
pay back one hundredth of the money? Probably not an exact percentage of one percent, but what they charged in interest, where they've taken vineyards, where they've taken children of slaves, they need to make it right. And God would call us to seek out restitution, to seek out relationship. What if there were those that were doing this that said, man, I'm really sorry before God, and I'm sorry before you, would you forgive me? But they don't change, and they actually just hold on to the money that they had taken through usury, that they keep the kids that they'd taken as slaves. No, if, if their heart is sorry, then that was revealed in their actions of saying, okay, I'm going to give this money back that I charged you with a high interest rate. I'm going to give you your, your vineyard back. You know, as a kid growing up, my brother and I broke our neighbor's window, put a baseball right through her big picture window. It probably wouldn't have went too far if we're like, oh, we're really sorry. She's elderly, elderly lady. Oh, we're sorry that we broke your window. How did we make that right? We had to buy her a new window. And dad, he was upfront on the money. He charged us 10% interest. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't charge us 10%. But we had to work it off and save up the money and pay dad back. That, that shows that we are sorry for what we did. And the same's true if we've been sinning against someone and we're sorry is to say, would you forgive me? And I'm gonna seek to change in my actions. I'm gonna seek to treat you differently and Jesus is the answer to our sin. He paid the price for our sin, for our forgiveness, but also so that the power of sin can be broken. We don't have hope outside of Christ, but in Christ there's tremendous hope for transformation where we're abiding in him and looking to him and saying, Lord, help me to treat this person differently. I've been sinning against them. And God begins to heal those relationships. Verse 12, so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They're willing to restore what they had taken through interest rates and taking land and seeing this as an opportunity to further gain uh, financially. They take these steps of, of restoration. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Interesting that Nehemiah would bring in some accountability. <laughs> Here, they've promised to make it right. Nehemiah says, wait a second, let's go get the priest. And I want the priest to hear this promise that you've made. So if it's not followed through with, the priest can then hold them accountable. This is really wise when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives, is welcome in accountability. Even be the one that says, you know, I need someone to walk alongside of me in this. I'm making this commitment to change through Christ's power and Christ's strength, but would you hold me accountable? I want you to hear this sin struggle in my life, and would you be willing to ask me how I'm doing with following up with this? Maybe it's I, I need to treat my spouse differently. Would you, would you pray for me in this? Or I've really been struggling with lust and compromising in this way. I, I want to be open with you, and, and would you hold me accountable in this? And there's great power in accountability and having someone in your corner to fight with you and to fight, fight for you. If we don't want accountability, we're probably not ready for change yet. We're probably at a place where we still want to stay in that sin. 
In verse 13, then I shook off the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who doesn't perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. Nehemiah is saying, hey, if you're not right with God, God's able to shake you out of your land. He's able to shake you out of your property. And ultimately, we're all accountable to the Lord. And we're accountable before him. What's interesting is that the people say amen and they praise the Lord. You wouldn't think that necessarily this tough conversation of dealing with sin would lead to praise. But when sin's dealt with in our lives, doesn't it lead to freedom? It's a terrible place to be when we're in duplicity, when we're in disobedience to God. I would have to think these nobles and rulers didn't feel too good when they were coming to the temple and worshiping the Lord, but knowing that they're sinning against God by mistreating fellow Israelites. So this morning, if God is convicting us of sin, or if he's challenging us to confront somebody in love, as hard as that is, let's respond just like the Israelites did in confession and repentance and restoration, because it's going to lead to freedom. There's nothing like going to bed at night and going, man, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short and I continue to, but today I'm in right standing with God and I'm right in right standing with others. I'm not holding out on God and I'm not holding out on others and you're going to sleep good. There's nothing like that kind of sleep. But there's also that conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit when we are in compromise where there isn't rest in our soul until we get right with the Lord. So repentance is going to lead to praise. It's going to lead to freedom. The chapter ends with Nehemiah being an example of generosity. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Xerxes. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. For 12 years, Nehemiah is the governor of Jerusalem, and with that comes the privilege of receiving a provision for him and his servants and his brothers, but Nehemiah never received that provision. Verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore ruler over the people, but I do not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Nehemiah wanted to be a blessing, not a burden. Former governors, they were a burden. They took this governor's provision, but not Nehemiah. And Jesus is the ultimate servant leader, where he doesn't ask bread and wine from us, but instead he gives us bread and wine. And he gives from his own broken body and his uh, shed blood. Nehemiah is a similar type of, of leader. He's a servant leader. In verse 16, Indeed, I also continued this work on the wall, and we didn't buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Nehemiah didn't see this as an opportunity to build up real estate, to expand his real estate portfolio. Yeah, there was opportunity, there was crisis, there was need, but he wasn't there for financial gain. He was really there to serve and to see the wall be rebuilt. In verse 17, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers 
besides those who came to and from the nations around us. Nehemiah had a lot of people at his table. Regular guests, 150, his servants, but then also those that would come from other nations. So here's the grocery list for, for Nehemiah. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and once every 10 days in abundance and all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I didn't demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on this people. Nehemiah paid for it out of his own pocket. It wasn't that there was a lack of need. It was the fact that Nehemiah was choosing to be generous. What's interesting about this is Nehemiah is wealthy. For him to be able to afford this, he has financial resources. So the problem is not with being wealthy. I mean, you could read through this and you could go, man, look at those wealthy rulers and nobles, and here they are, they're the ones who are taking advantage of fellow Israelites. The problem is wealth. It's wrong for one person to have more financial resources than someone else. And I don't think that that's biblical. We know that God does bless in different forms and fashions. The problem isn't the wealth, it's our attitude towards it. God says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you look at Abraham, he was an extremely wealthy man. God really blessed him in that way. But God told Abraham, I've blessed you to be a blessing. So it's really how we are going to live that out. Nehemiah is living out faith. He's living out generosity. He's not holding on to what the Lord had provided, but he's willing to share in this, this point of need. And so that's important for us to, to wrestle through is it's like, okay, it's not wrong necessarily to have things and have possessions, but what's my attitude going to be uh, towards them? In verse 19, remember me, my God, for good, according to the, all that I've done for this people. You see Nehemiah's relationship with God, you see his fear of God and wanting to be right with the Lord. Who do you think had more joy in the Lord? Nehemiah or these rulers and nobles? I think Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah knows he's right with the Lord. He knows he's being generous in the way that the Lord would lead him and guide him to do. And then you have these nobles who were living in fear and using this tragedy to create more money to get more land, to get more property, but it was at the sake of taking advantage of other Israelites. So let's consider this as we close up this morning is, is there areas of sin that God wants to address in our lives? We could study the book of Nehemiah and really not experience any change, not growing closer to the Lord, not seeing this wall of defense being built up around our lives. So what things would the Lord bring to light through his word, through the power of the spirit, through others? Are we open to brothers and sisters in Christ challenging us on sin if they saw an area of sin in our lives? So, so what's being exposed by the Lord this morning? especially in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we treat people. And as the God does expose things, let's not get defensive. Let's be silent before him. 
Let's confess our sin to him. Lord, you're right. The way I've been treating this person is wrong. Lord, I'm sinning against you. Seek to make it right with that person. Confess that sin before them. Then also look, how does that relationship restored? How do I rebuild that relationship? More than I've seen in any other time, we're living in a time where families are getting divided. There's a lot of attack that's happening in marriages and relationship with kids and extended family. Is there a relationship that God would want to bring healing to that has been fractured or or there's been division? Then to go, okay, Lord, is there a difficult conversation that I need to have? I don't think there's any of us that want to be in Nehemiah's shoes. I have to take this role of confronting sin. But aren't you so thankful for some people in your life that loved you enough to confront you on sin? If someone loves you enough to challenge you on sin in a loving way, that's a true friend. The Proverbs tell us, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's a good friend that says, dude, your breath stinks. Like, <laughs> Something died in your mouth, right? You need to go take care of that. And it's a true friend that says, man, I love you, I care for you. This is what the scripture says. I I wanna bring it to your attention. Pray about it. And it may be that the Lord wants you to have a difficult conversation. God moves in this area of challenging us with sin because he's our father and he loves us. And Jesus is the answer to our sin. I want you to hear that. It's not that God just calls us out with sin because he condemns us, but because he's got the means for us to be forgiven. He's got the means for us to live in the light. He's got the power to be able to, to transform our lives. So if sin needs to be dealt with in our lives, let's go there. Let's go there personally, and let's go there with others because the freedom is worth it. On the other side of it, it's worth it. Please don't misunderstand it. We're never going to have perfection this side of heaven. But there is that willingness to grow, that willingness to change, and keeping short account with God and with others. It's like, okay, I've sinned. I've fallen short here. My heart's gotten hard towards a fellow believer. I want to make it right with the Lord. I want to make it right with them. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to to call us out on our sin, to provide your son, your only begotten, so that we could be forgiven and transformed. We do ask that you would search us and that you would know us, especially in the way that we treat one another. Would you fill us with your love afresh? Help us to truly love each other, to have your love, your supernatural love for each other. God, would you bring breakthrough in families? Would you heal families, heal marriages, heal relationships with extended family, protect us from from bitterness? Or give us courage to have these difficult and hard conversations when sin needs to be confronted. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.